Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in chapter 8 of the Gospel of Luke, where we discuss the dangers of bad doctrine in the modern church being equipped to stand for truth. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey in the Word. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. We're only going to cover three verses this morning, so surprise, surprise, surprise. But uh, I, I think that this is a standalone that we I don't want to ignore. Here he says in, in chapter 8, verse 1, Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, but out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's servant, uh, steward rather, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Jesus, here in this passage, is now pressing on with his primary mission. And, and when I say primary mission, I mean primary before his primary mission, which was to die for the sins of mankind, right? But while he's alive, he's pressing on with his primary mission. And what is Jesus's mission focus? Well, some will suggest that it was to call men and women to repentance from their sinful behaviors. But this was not his focus, at least not directly. He had a focus that would inevitably lead to that end, but it was not what he was focused on. Behaviors from Jesus' perspective were secondary because behaviors from his view were simply a symptom of a much greater problem, which he really was focused on dealing with. He wanted to deal with the greater problem. It's why he came. We'll come back to that. Others will suggest that it was to preach a message that would change the world. But that was not his focus at least not in the sense that many think and suggest. Although the message Jesus preached would and has most certainly had an impact on the world, still having an impact on the world, Jesus did not come to change the world. Like human behavior, the world and its problems were and still are nothing more than a symptom of the greater problem which Jesus came to deal with. So the question we then have to ask is what I want to talk about this morning is what was Jesus's mission focus? You know, Luke tells us very clearly here in this passage what it was. He went through every city and village preaching and bringing glad tidings of the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus was bringing good news to the people by declaring that God's Messiah the king whom the scriptures pointed to and, and long foretold would come and who the people of Israel had longed for was now present among them and, and bringing with him the announcement of his kingdom. Now, many people wrongly teach that what this statement declares is that Jesus was initiating God's kingdom on the earth during his first coming. They, they teach that as time has passed and as time continues to pass and as the church steps up and fulfills its calling, that the kingdom of God will continue to be more and more revealed and more and more established on this earth until it's finally put in place. And then and only then will Jesus return and take his rightful place at the head of it all. 
That idea is that, that despite what we see going on in our world today that, that seems so negative, that things are actually moving more and more progressively towards a better world, which will culminate with the kingdom being fully established on the earth and Jesus returning to take his rightful place, his head over it all. In other words, the view is that we're moving from a state of disorder to a state of order. Let me just say this as clearly as I can say it. That's bad theology. It's bad theology. This is not what this verse is saying, nor are there any verses or passages in the Bible that support that notion, at least not if those verses and passages are kept within their context. There is nothing in Scripture that supports any notion that the kingdom of God is already here and that it's steadily growing and steadily being revealed, or that in time it's just going to emerge and overtake everything on this planet as the church and as Christians fulfill their calling and bring it about. In fact, Scripture indicates quite the opposite, right? Scripture tells us that the world will continue to grow worse, not better. We're not moving from a state of disorder to order. We're moving from a state of order which was established in the garden, but which man traded away through willful sin. We're moving from a state of order to greater disorder, and 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 that it will all culminate in the last days, in a period of decay and evil at levels never seen before on this planet. I know that we look at our world right now, it's in such chaos, and we think it can't get any worse. Trust me. The Bible says it can. In fact, it not only says it can, the Bible says it will get worse. Listen carefully to what Scripture actually says. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, none of the kids in here are, right? Not disobedient to parents. Okay, good. Unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. That is an incredible list. You know, we we look at our world and we see so much of this already happening in our world, but, but Paul is talking clearly about the last days. He's saying it's going to culminate with these kinds of things that are occurring at a level in our world like we've never seen. And I find it interesting because the verse begins by simply saying, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times, they will come. Right there, that statement alone says we're not moving from a state of disorder to a state of order. We're moving in the wrong direction is what the verse says. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, we're told, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. You know, one of the things that I'm attuned to today is, is how the church right now is being given over to so many, so many speculations, so many vast ideas. And I can't help but to think of this verse of, of how even within the church of God itself, how easily we get pulled away from truth. But here again is this idea that as time passes, things are not getting better. They're actually moving in the wrong direction, even spiritually. Second Peter 3.3. 3. Knowing this first, 
that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. Again, wrong direction. Jude chapter seven or Jude, yeah, chapter seventeen and eighteen. I just recreated the book of Jude, right? Jude verses seventeen and eighteen. Jude verses seventeen and eighteen. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. You know, we we read these verses, and of course, we think immediately of the unsaved world around us, but the truth is, we're seeing it even within Christianity itself. Now, again, the point is not to bash Christianity or anyone. The point is simply to to say that none of these verses, and and you can do a search of the scriptures, you're going to find they all point in this direction, that we're moving from a state of order to disorder, and not the reverse, which the kingdom proponents that say the kingdom is being birthed on the earth already would suggest it is. Or how about what Jesus told his disciples when they asked about the signs of his return? You know, Jesus, tell us about what's going to be the timing of return. What do we look for? And he he gives them a series of events, but, but none of those events that he gives to them depicts a world that's steadily getting more and more godly and, and, and with a righteous kingdom more and more being put in place for his return to rule over, but quite the opposite. You know, these words, Matthew 24, verse, beginning in verse 3, listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 24 and verse 3, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Well, the kingdom will be in place, and everything will be in order, and godliness will be reigning, and righteousness will... No. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. In other words, this is just the start, he's saying. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. He doesn't say the gospel will be preached because the kingdom will be in place. He's saying it's going to be basically a witness to the nations in light of where the nations have gone, in light of where the world has gone. The contrast will be stark. And, and of course, any honest reading of the book of Revelation will make clear that the kingdom of God will only come when Jesus Christ himself returns and personally establishes it after, after personally purging the world of evil and rebellion that will exist, that will be in existence when he returns. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and righteousness, uh, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. Now, why would he strike the nations if the kingdom's already in place? There's no reason for him to do that, but he does. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's clear. Jesus won't be returning to a kingdom that's already in place. He'll be returning to remove the corrupt kingdom of man that will be in place, that will culminate with the Antichrist kingdom and, and, and replace that, that with his own righteous kingdom. But he will be doing that. It's not something that will be here, but it's something that he will do. Listen, the, the very idea that the kingdom of God is already here and growing is a false and unscriptural theology, and yet it is the theology that's held by many Christians today. In fact, this is the theology held by many Christians who are serving, and, and please, you know, I was told not to caveat this, but I'm going to caveat it anyways. I, I'm, I, this is going to seem like I've, I've scripted this message based on events that have unfolded in the last week and all the rhetoric that's out there. This message was already being worked on long before this began to happen, so you guys know that. And so it is a tough message this morning, and I'm just going to say that, and, and I'm going to step on some things I typically don't do, but I would just ask you to listen to what I'm saying, okay? Don't react to it. Just listen to what's being said. But this is the theology that's held by many Christians who are serving a government today, that especially among those who are serving even in the present administration. They believe that we as Christians must take control of government and change laws so that the kingdom of God and the morals of the kingdom can be fully implemented first in our country and then ultimately in our world at large so that Christ can ultimately return and take his rightful place ruling over it all. There's an entire well-developed theology that promotes this idea and its influence on present-day Christian thinking, especially American Christian thinking, is far-reaching. It's known by a lot of different titles, but the most common name of which is the Seven Mountain Mandate. Maybe you've heard that term before. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you're not familiar with it or with the formal title, but I can almost guarantee you that you have come in contact with the ideas promoted by this theology, and you've even possibly been influenced by it in your own thinking to some degree. Now, let me define it a bit for you. Those who ascribe to the Seven Mountain Mandate believe that in order for Christ to return to the earth, the church and Christians at large must take control of what they believe to be the seven spheres of influence, the seven spheres of influence in society, and were to take control of that for the glory of Christ and for the full establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. Now, the seven mountains, which they also refer to as pillars, shapers, molders or spheres which they believe christians must control influence and establish are the following education religion family business government slash military right all part of one arts and entertainment and media these seven sectors they believe to be the key areas of society that mold the way everyone thinks and behaves which I can't argue with. 
these are shapers in in so many ways in our society. But because of this, they believe that for society to change towards righteousness and for God's kingdom to ultimately be established on the earth, they believe that these seven mountains must be transformed by Christians. The seven mountain mandate says that it is the duty and it is the responsibility of all Christians to create a worldwide kingdom for the glory of Christ by invading, that's a term they will use, invading the culture, occupying these mountains, and transforming society. They, they believe that we as Christians and as Christ's church on the earth have the principal mandate of dominating the world culturally, politically, and spiritually through the transformative implementation of biblical principles and moral laws. And even in its most extreme interpretation, through the implementation of the associated punishments prescribed in the Old Testament for violating those laws. You might laugh at that, but I had a conversation with a brother in the Lord not all that long ago who on Proverbs 22, verse 15, where it says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, the rod of correction will drive it far from him, went into an entire dissertation that this applies to society, and the reason we are the way we are is because we're no longer disciplining people in our society. Then at first I thought, well, what do you mean by that? And I kind of probed that a little bit. And he says, well, we need to do what the Scripture says. We need to beat it out of them. We need to beat unrighteousness out of them. And I thought I was having a conversation that I was just missing the point. And so I probed a little bit more, and the conversation became very clear. He went back to the 1700s when we had the whooping posts and everything else set up in communities. He said, we don't have the problems we have today when we had those things. And we need to do those things. And I just kind of told him, I said, well, I'm not looking to, you know, start putting chains on the trees out here to whip people into righteousness. But, but I'm just saying this kind of thinking is out there, and we laugh at it and we snicker at it, but the truth is it's there. Now, you might be skeptical of what I'm saying here and, and think that I'm overstating things, but this is more ingrained in American Christian thinking today. Not necessarily all the extreme forms of it, but the very premise of what I'm talking about is more ingrained in Christian thinking today than you might realize. While the formal title, Seven Mountain Mandate, might not mean much to many Christians, the influence of this movement and the influence of many people within this movement are all around you and even widely accepted by a growing number of undiscerning Christians. Now, you might be familiar with the name of a guy by the and I don't name call, just so you know, you need to know this for background on this, but there's, you might be familiar with this name, Lance Wallnow. Does that, does that ring for anybody? Lance is, is popular today. And in fact, his social media posts are growing in popularity today because he deals with spiritual political commentaries on this kind of idea. But what a lot of people don't realize that he's one of the preeminent speakers that promotes this movement. In fact, he's the one who actually coined the term seven mountain mandate. He believes and he teaches that this mandate was given to the church by Jesus Christ when he gave the missionary commission to his disciples of go and make disciples of all nations. And what he suggests is that in large part, that commission had to do with societal transformation. And he then goes on to reason that since present-day churches already have a God-established strategic presence in every nation in the world, that it is our mandate to concentrate on influencing the systems, the societal mountains, 
if you will, within these nations where we live. However, from Mr. Walnow's perspective, the problem is that Christians are not currently influencing society outside the church to the degree that we should be. And as a result, he says that Christians have left the mountains susceptible to the gates of hell which are spiritual portals, he would argue, of satanic and demonic influence and control over the kings, who he refers to as the influence shapers of those mountains within those societies, within those nations. And and what has to happen from his perspective is that we, as believers and as the church of Christ in this world, must step up and move in proximity to the gates of hell by positioning ourselves in such a way where we can infiltrate and exert influence on these various societal mountains and on the influence shapers of those mountains. And since every believer can't position himself at the top of every major mountain, each of us must individually find our particular smaller peak within our local communities, within our spheres where we are, and be leaders in that realm, in the local community, in the school system, in local government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Again, I, kn- I know that, that that maybe hearing this seems, you, you, it can cause some skepticism, you know, I, I don't buy this. This is just some Christian conspiracy theory, but it's not. It's not. This is a very real, a very well-developed, and a very widely accepted theology, even though a lot of Christians don't realize that they're being influenced by it in their thinking and in their spiritual worldview. I mean, a lot of what this theology teaches are things that appeal to our righteous nature in Christ, right? I, I'm not going to argue that. There's things in this that appeal to our Christian righteousness, the nature of righteousness that Christ has put in us. I mean, think about this. Who of us doesn't want to see good and righteous laws implemented in our nation or to live in a society where morality is promoted and valued? We all do, right? I mean, that's that's inherent. When I became a Christian, I suddenly wasn't as interested in all the sinful things that I used to support in society. Things that were, you know, I would vote for for candidates that could give me my sin. Now, I don't do that. I don't want that. Uh, So who of us doesn't want that? Who of us doesn't want to be lights in the midst of darkness? Right? We want to be that. And by by our very witness as Christians, we want to be influencers and supporters of right things in our society. And, And who of us thinks that it's a bad idea for Christians to be involved in government or in the local community in order to represent right things? None of us. None of us would say that we, no, I don't want that. No, we do. We want these things. But folks, just because these kinds of things resonate with us and involve right things, it does not make this theology correct or something to be embraced, nor does it make the people who promote it people to be embraced and looked up to for our spiritual thinking. And, and unfortunately, that's what a lot of people are doing today. I am personally amazed by the lack of a pall of biblically sound Christians and church leaders in particular who just a few years ago were warning their flocks about the dangers of the faith and prosperity teachers, who, by the way, in large part, fully embraced this particular theology because it fits along with it, right? Health, wealth, and prosperity comes along with a kingdom being established on the earth. But now there's even, and I no names mentioned here, but there's even a woman in the White House who's a notable leader in the faith and prosperity movement who's serving as the president's chief spiritual advisor. And, and suddenly no one's saying a word, just crickets. 
Why? I suggest to you it's because this theology is getting mainstreamed in our spiritual thinking. How many of you guys have heard of Bethel Church? Bethel is well known for a lot of Christian music that's popular today. Some of it is very appealing. Some of it's spiritually uplifting. But what I'll bet many of you don't know is that Bethel is one of the leading proponents of what is known as the New Apostolic Reformation Movement. NAR is the term. It's, it's one of the leading proponents of this theology. NAR and its proponents like Bethel Church who promote, they're the ones that promote the seventh, the seven mountain mandate theology. It's, a, it's ingrained in it all. And, and they've completely abandoned biblical teaching on the end times, promoting instead the idea uh, of Christians that they, that Christians have to set the stage for Jesus' second coming by achieving dominion over the world's systems with the belief that Jesus will only return to a world that mirrors the kingdom of God. Some of Bethel's music even subtly promotes this idea, even though many Christians miss it. Take, for example, the song titled, What a Beautiful Name It Is. It's the, the verse, there's a verse in the song that says, you didn't want heaven without us, so you brought heaven down. Now, without knowing the theology of this church movement or what they believe about these things, we'd likely not think much about what's being implied here. We'd likely interpret as saying that Jesus, who was God in the flesh, had heaven within him and, and brought it down in himself as he walked among us. And yet, when we understand the backdrop of this theology uh, of those who wrote this song at Bethel, that's what's, real, what's really being communicated, albeit subtly, is that Jesus brought an established heaven on on earth, which he did not. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.